Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 73 called Justin and Justinian. We've now reached one of the most exciting bits of Roman history, the age of Justinian, when the Roman Empire, albeit the eastern half of it, rose to achieve greatness again. Huge territories were reconquered in the West, something not seen since the time of Julius Caesar. There was a cultural flowering with the last truly great Roman writer, Procopius, and an extensive codification of Roman law, much of which has formed the basis of modern lawmaking in Europe and America. It was also an era of magnificent building. Just as Rome had massive monuments like the Colosseum and the Pantheon, so Justinian constructed the greatest buildings in Constantinople that have survived to this day, and which made the medieval city by far the most impressive in the West, if not in the entire world. Looked upon with wonder by the Vikings, who called it Miklagard, and by the Crusaders when they travelled there in the First Crusade. So Justinian's reign was every bit as glorious as those of Augustus, Hadrian and Constantine. But it didn't start that way. Justinian's origins were distinctly murky and his path to power was as surprising as that of the new age of Rome he created. So let's start our journey before Justinian was born with three illiterate peasants in Illyria, a war-torn province in around the year 470, when the Western Empire was on its last legs and the Eastern Emperor Leo had just suffered one of Rome's greatest defeats at the Battle of Cape Bon in 468, when his armada sent to recapture Carthage had been destroyed by the Vandals. The three peasants were called Justin, Zamarcus, and Ditivistus, and although it sounds absurd to say this, about 50 years later, one of them, Justin, would become the Roman emperor. What has this got to do with Justinian, you might well ask? Well, about 10 years later, Justin's sister would give birth to Justinian, who Justin adopted as his son. But more of that later. Let's hear Justin's story first. Procopius has left us with a vivid description of Justin and his friends leaving their life of, quote, grinding poverty to find fame and fortune in Constantinople. They left Illyria to walk on foot to the great city, a journey of some 300 miles, quote, carrying on their shoulders cloaks in which, on their arrival, they had nothing but a few dry biscuits left, end quote. When they got to Constantinople, they fairly easily found employment as soldiers, for, as Procopius described, they were tall and strong young men, just the type the Roman army wanted. Indeed, they joined the best of the best, the palace guard, known as the Scoli Palatini, where they suddenly found themselves at the centre of the Eastern Roman court. We don't know what happened to his two peasant friends, but Justin embarked on a long and highly successful career in the Imperial Guard. He would probably have spent his time not just on ceremonial duties around the palace, but also on campaign, especially during Anastasius's reign, when the Scoli fought with the regular army against the Azorian Rebellion that lasted from 492 to 497, the Persian War of 502 to 506, and also against Vitalian after his revolt in 515. 
Before Vitalian's revolt, Justin had transferred from the Scoli to the Excubitors, a 300-strong elite guards regiment. By 515, he was commander of the Excubitors, putting him in an influential position given his proximity to the imperial family. Let's now return to Justinian, because it was Justin who invited him to Constantinople and gave him a chance to make something of his life. The reason Justin did this was because he had no son of his own and effectively adopted the young Justinian. Justin's personal life is every bit as surprising as his meteoric rise to power, for instead of searching out a well-connected woman to be his wife, who could help him cultivate useful contacts such as, for example, Stilicho had done when he married the emperor's niece Serena a hundred years before, he married a woman of very low social standing, with whom he'd forged a strong relationship early in his life. She was a former slave girl of barbarian origins with the name of Lupicina, which can best be translated as Foxy. Instead of casting her off as he rose to power, he married her and changed her name to Euphemia, meaning of good repute, thereby distancing her from her lowly origins. Procopius said she became a pious woman, although, like Justin, he regarded her as nothing more than an illiterate peasant. While Justin and Euphemia seemed to have been a devoted couple, they had no children. So Justin contacted his sister, whose name hasn't been recorded, and her husband, Sabatius, both poor peasants just as Justin had been, and asked them to send their son, named Petrus Sabatius, to join him, where he would use his good fortune to provide the boy with an education and career prospects he could never have dreamt of at home. Petrus was probably born about 482 and Justin may have summoned him to Constantinople in around 490 when he was only about eight years old. Justin looked after him as if he were his own son and paid for an excellent education so that he could read and write both Greek and his own native Latin. He added the adoptive name of Justinianus or Justinian to use the anglicised form which was more Roman sounding and henceforth he was always referred to by this name. When he was a teenager, Justin secured him a position in the Imperial Guard in a small unit called the Candidati, who served as the Emperor's personal bodyguard, a very exclusive unit which gave the young Justinian an ideal opportunity to see the workings of court life at first hand. Although he almost certainly never saw active service on the front line as Justin did, he became an experienced and senior member of the Imperial Guard. Cue the event that would now turn the world upside down for both Justin and Justinian. On the night of the 9th of July 518, Anastasius died without an heir. It is surprising such a conscientious ruler didn't secure his succession, but he was 87 years old and he may no longer have cared too much about what happened to the empire after his death. The problem was there was no obvious heir apparent. He had three nephews, Probus, Pompeius and Hypatius, but none of them, it seems, was particularly ambitious or keen to become emperor. Hypatius and Pompey were both generals and were stationed some distance from the capital, Hypatius in Antioch and Pompeius in Marcianople. The civil servants, called the Silentarii, who discovered Anastasius's dead body, sent news of his death to the two heads of the Imperial Guard, Justin and Keller, who commanded the other elite guards regiment called the Scolarii. 
Justin and Keller told their troops to wait while a successor was chosen. In these circumstances, the Senate would normally choose a successor and the next day it met to vote on candidates. Meanwhile, news of Anastasius's death spread like wildfire and when the Senate was meeting, not far away from it, the Hippodrome was filled with supporters of the Blue Faction in particular, who chanted, A God-given Emperor for the Army, a God-given Emperor for the World. But the problem was the Senate couldn't agree on a candidate. As the day wore on, the mob in the Hippodrome lost patience. In response, Justin's excubitors declared their own Emperor, a tribune and friend of Justin's named John, but only to be shouted down by the Blues. The Scolarii were not to be outdone and proclaimed their emperor, a friend of their boss, Keller, a general named Patricius. But the excubitors didn't approve of this, and apparently it was only Justinian's intervention which stopped a fight between the two sets of guards. The excubitors then asked Justinian to be emperor, but he refused, presumably because he felt there was no way someone as junior as him could keep the job. Back to the Senate, where reports were coming in of the scandalous attempts by the excubitors and scolarii to nominate their own candidates, the senators decided they needed to act fast to avoid bloodshed. They turned to Justin as a well-liked soldier and asked him to be emperor. Justin accepted, though not without some protests made by Keller's scolarii, one of whom apparently even punched him. Justin was about 68 years old and known to be a brave soldier, loyal and sensible, as well as an anti-monophysite. So although he had no imperial pedigree, he ticked a lot of boxes, very similar, for example, to the Emperor Marcion, when he was raised to the purple back in 450 to succeed the incompetent Theodosius II. When Justin went to the Hippodrome, both the Blues and Greens cheered him, this sealed the Senate's decision. He was joined by the Patriarch of Constantinople and Anastasius's ministers, who gave him the imperial diadem, spear and shield. He received an ovation from the crowd, who chanted, Justin Augustus, may you be victorious. He immediately bought the support of the army by announcing that every soldier would receive a donative of five gold coins and a pound of silver to mark his accession. So, neat work by Justin, and the question on everyone's minds was whether he'd planned this all along. I think the answer has to be no. Most historians accept his later statement to Pope Hormisdus in Rome that becoming emperor was a total surprise, and he was actually unwilling to accept the nomination. I'm a bit more sceptical than that, and I think Justin grasped the opportunity with both hands, although he probably hadn't been planning for it since he expected expected one of Anastasius's nephews to seize the throne. This view is supported by one chronicler who says at the last minute he used money to bribe the imperial guard to support him, which was originally given him by the court chamberlain Amantius to secure support for another candidate, a senator named Theocritus. But whether, to quote Shakespeare, Justin achieved greatness or had greatness thrust upon him, once he became emperor, he set about ruling with impressive energy. 
Procopius is scathing about his lack of education, claiming he couldn't read or write, and when he became emperor, he could only sign documents with the help of a stencil in which he traced the words saying, I have read it. Most historians regard this as an exaggeration and think Justin probably learned how to read and write as a soldier, although, as Procopius noted, it was truly remarkable that an emperor should come from such a lowly background. However, Procopius seems to have forgotten that the last time this happened was back in the 3rd century, when the Illyrian soldier emperors had seized the throne in the crisis of that century. If you can remember back to episode 14 in this podcast, we discussed the first of them called Claudius Gothicus, a peasant who'd risen in the ranks by becoming a prize boxer, famous for knocking his opponent's teeth out. And I don't need to remind you that it was these emperors who'd saved the empire back at that time. Although Justin's nine-year reign was relatively uneventful in terms of foreign policy, he made some very important changes. The most significant of these was his immediate attack on monophysitism. He persuaded the patriarch of the city, John, who'd been appointed by Anastasius as a pro-monophysite, to renounce it and affirm his allegiance to the Chalcedonian definition of the faith. He also got him to condemn Severus, the outspoken monophysite patriarch of Antioch, who fled to Egypt. Next was the recall of Vitalian, who, as you remember from the last episode, was passionately Chalcedonian and had rebelled against Anastasius's monophysite policy and was now hiding in Thrace. Vitalian was welcomed back like the prodigal son and given the office of Magister Militum of the Pricental Armies, although this title was largely honorary since the Pricental Armies were now stationed along the Persian frontier since the War of 502-506. to Justin also made him consul for the year 520, an even higher honour. At the same time, he sought to close the rift with Rome by sending a letter to Pope Hormisdus asking him to pray for his success. This was code for saying that the Chalcedonian definition of the faith, i.e. the opposite of monophysitism, would now be promoted throughout the Eastern Empire. In March 519, a papal delegation was received in Constantinople by Vitalian, Anastasius's nephew Pompey, and Justinian. It's interesting to note at this point, Justinian was very much the junior partner with Vitalian, certainly the most powerful man in the empire after Justin. But once the people were happy with Vitalian's recall and the new alliance with Rome, Justinian quickly began to assert his authority. In the summer of 520, Justin made him co-magister militum of the Pricental Armies with Vitalian. This was a clear sign Justin was manoeuvring Justinian into prime position. And what followed next was truly shocking. Only a few months after being made consul in July 520, Vitalian was suddenly and unexpectedly murdered in a parade ground near the Imperial Palace in Constantinople. 
also murdered were the court chamberlain Amantius and his protégé Theocritus. As I mentioned earlier, Amantius had given Justin money to promote Theocritus when the Senate was debating imperial candidates, which Justin had used to buy support for himself. Much scholarly ink has been spilt over whether it was Justin or Justinian who was behind this. In my view, it was almost certainly a concerted effort. Justin had long regarded Justinian as his own son and inheritor of his life's work and was eagerly planning for him to take power after he died, especially since he was approaching 70 years old. The Purge shows just how brutal Justin and Justinian could be when they wanted. And I think it demonstrates that Justin was not the unwilling emperor he liked to portray himself as. In 521, Justinian was proclaimed consul, taking Vitalian's position. He now embarked on a charm offensive to secure his succession to the throne. It was traditional for the consul to court popularity with the people of Constantinople by staging lavish entertainments in the Hippodrome. This harked back to the classical empire when the orgies of bloodshed in the Colosseum became a ritual for emperors to display both their power and their gratitude to the people of the capital. For example, when the Colosseum, or Flavian Amphitheatre, as it was known to the Romans, was completed in AD 80, the Emperor Titus held 100 days of games involving animal fights, the execution of criminals, and of course the highlight of the performance, the gladiatorial combats. Over 400 years later, and despite the adoption of Christianity, the format in the Hippodrome in Constantinople retained much of the original Roman pagan character. Chariot racing replaced gladiatorial combat, but otherwise many of the spectacles were very similar to those of the past. There were wild animal hunts. One source records Justinian exhibited 20 lions and 30 panthers in addition to other wild beasts. Lions and panthers were among the most exotic and expensive of wild animals and the crowd loved it. There was also prize fighting and wrestling. One of the mob's favourites was the so-called Parade of the Whores, which proceeded through the streets to a theatre close to the Hippodrome. Actors, actresses and prostitutes would dress up as monks and nuns to the wild amusement of their audience. Of course, the church strongly disapproved, and later in the century, when plague and famine brought an age of austerity, the event was abolished. The cost of this entertainment was prohibitive. According to Procopius, a consul would normally be expected to spend £2,000 of gold a year, a huge amount of money. Traditionally, this was paid out of the consul's own pocket, and in return, they would attract massive popular support, an ideal platform for an aspiring politician. But by Justinian's day, consuls were reclaiming this expenditure from the state, and we can be fairly certain that Justinian was doing just that. By 521, Justin's health was beginning to fail. He was over 70 years old, troubled by an old war wound, and according to Procopius, suffering from what we would call today dementia 
Quote, Justin was in his dotage and quite senile so that he became the laughing stock of his subjects. End quote. Justinian took over government in all but name. He wanted to eliminate any opposition. His lavish entertainments had won over the mob, in particular the Blues, who shared his pro-Chalcedonian stance in contrast to the Greens, who were more aligned with the Monophysites. Most of the Senate also backed him, and his supporters called for him to be given the honorary rank of Nobilissimus, most noble. In 525, Justin formally made him his deputy or Caesar. All looked set for a smooth succession. But there was some opposition. In 523, major riots occurred in Constantinople and other cities in the empire, orchestrated by the Blues. The urban prefect of Constantinople, Theodotus, nicknamed the Pumpkin, was rumoured to be on the verge of arresting Justinian for inciting these given his support for the Blues. This was probably a pretext to try to oust him from power. If so, it failed, but it was still a threat to Justinian. Justin had to intervene to get Theodotus dismissed. Justinian then tried to get his own back by inventing charges of murder and sorcery against Theodotus, who employed the most brilliant lawyer of his age, a barrister by the name of Proculus, to defend him, and got off scot-free. But he still fled the capital and found refuge in a monastery in Jerusalem. But the lesson was clear. Justinian was not to be trifled with. Nevertheless, opposition was still building. In the Senate, support was growing for Anastasius's nephew Hypatius as an alternative to Justinian. The aristocratic families in the capital still resented Justin and Justinian as peasants. Justin was now senile and incapable of ruling, and Justinian had to act fast before Hypatius was put forward as an imperial candidate. In 527, the succession was rushed through. Justinian told his supporters in the Senate to call for him to be made Augustus on account of Justin's ill health. On the 1st of April, 527, the doddering Justin appointed him Augustus and co-emperor in the palace. Three days later, the imperial guard proclaimed him emperor. Shortly after that, Epiphanius, the patriarch of Constantinople and an ally of Justinian's, formally crowned him. Justinian's opponents in the Senate had no choice but to accept this as a fait accompli. Justin was probably bedridden by this time. He died on the 1st of August, 527. The age of Justinian had begun. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time, on the 23rd of December, we'll start on the story of Justinian's reign, and what a story that is. And in the meantime, if you like the podcast, please head over to my website, nickholmesauthor.com, link in the show notes, to find maps, blogs, and a free ebook. If you like the podcast, I guarantee you'll love the website. Thanks for listening and see you next time.